welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We continue in our uh, verse-by-verse study of the book of Colossians today, and we are now at Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 15. And so as we have for so many years here, by God's wonderful grace, let us hear once again as a congregation the Word of God. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful this is God's perfect word it has a deepening call for us in our relationships may we hear it from him in Jesus name amen thank you you can be seated Well, as we begin today, I want to remind you of something. And that is that if the risen Christ enters someone's life, some supernatural things should start happening. If the risen Christ enters someone's life, some supernatural things should start happening. Now, I'm not speaking there of what you might think. I'm not speaking... Uh, there of suddenly being able to speak in a language you've never learned or, or to be involved in signs and wonders and the sensational. I'm not talking about the sensational. I'm talking about the personal. That's what this text talks about. The beginnings of a personal transformation of your soul and your character so that you become more like Jesus Christ in the hardest refining ground of all, and that is your personal relationships talking about a personal and powerful experience of change that not only makes you a different person reflecting Jesus, but radiates out into the other relationships you have and begins to to bring a, a breaking of the light of his presence upon those around you. This is what God's will is for your and my life. It can be transformational in, in ways that Draw attention from the world. In Argentina, some of the world's darkest and most violent prisons exist. And uh, in Argentina, in one of those prisons, a pastor named Sergio Prada has been ministering to prisoners for decades. Because of those that he's been able to lead to Christ and and the supernatural change in their lives as inmates, 
Over the past 20 years, the Argentine prison authorities have encouraged the creation of cell units or prison units of cells run by evangelical inmates. The change is so powerful that literally the inmates are running the prisons and they're, they're showing forth the life and the order of Christ. That's an amazing story. He was interviewed about this recently, and, and Pastor, uh, Pastor Sergio said, we don't use knives to take over a cell block here. We use Bibles. I thought, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Supernatural change in your life that affects others. People who know Jesus ought to be living supernatural lives. And really, I'm entitling this set of messages through this section of Scripture on living a supernatural life, because that's what Paul is getting at. Supernatural lives that affect not only the world, but they're reflected in the church. If people are changed by Jesus, you would expect that that change is first seen in their relationships in the body of Christ. That's where they most often get together, and that's where Christ-likeness gets its chance to shine first. And as the church is transformed, then it goes out into the culture, and by the power of the Spirit, individual lives in the culture are transformed from darkness to light, and we see the glory of God. So that's the dimension of life that the church is to live, but our relationships should be changed here first. And that's the focus of this passage, is relationships in the body of Christ. Now Paul's theme, not just here, but in many places in which he writes, is that when you become a new person, you start living a new life. And by the transverse reasoning, you really can't live a new life until you first become a new person in Christ. We see that in this epistle. Remember when we started chapter 3 some time ago, in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul said, If then you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things above. He's stating there that if, if the new life of Christ through the presence of the Holy Spirit has come into your soul, if you've been born again and a new dimension of being able to love and obey God and love others in His presence and power has become true of you, then you will be able to live a different life, a life that thinks, seeks the things that are, ab that are above, a life that's hidden with Christ in God, a life that reflects His glory. So new people show new living, and you can't show that new living unless you're that new person. But he assumes that they are. He knows their hearts. He knows their, their Christ. He knows they have the Holy Spirit within them. They've been born again. And now he instructs them on what their living out of that identity should look like. And in chapter 3, there are really three dimensions to it. We've covered the first already in verses 5 through 11 last time. We saw that uh, it, uh, it creates Christian character, Christ-like character. It means that some of the greatest battles with sin we've always had begin to be won. And last week we saw that Christ-like character means that you begin to have victory over two of the greatest besetting sins in the human life. A besetting sin is a problem sin, a chronic direction that we have. And he takes on two, and we saw it last week. He took on immorality and all of its forms, and, it, and he took on anger and all of the destructiveness that comes out of that. And he taught us last time that because we've been given a new nature, we can now begin to walk in victory in those ways. Christian character looks like that growing victory. 
Now, in verses 12 to 15, he gets into what Christian relationships look like in general in the body of Christ. Verse 12 through 15, he talks about putting on a new set of behaviors because we are now new people in Christ. The first few verses we studied last week were about putting off an old set of addictions. Now we get to putting on the language changes, verse 12, the first phrase, and we're now stepping into the new identity and the new lifestyle that Christ has for us in our relationships, and that's the greatest proving ground, isn't it? That's through verses 12 to 15. We'll look at that today. Beginning in verse 16, he shifts into what I would call Christian engagement. So you've got Christian character, the first part of the chapter. Now you have Christian relationships, which we'll study today. And after that, Christian engagement, and that is how we work in all of the connections in our lives. And he gets into the whole dimension of how the body of Christ relates in praise and in worship, verses 16 and 17. And then he gets into every other connection in your world relationally and in your, your life orbit. He talks about family life beginning of verses, verse 18 and onward. He talks about life in the employment world and the world and the society at large beginning at verse 22. He talks about all those other dimensions that kind of play themselves out and goes into chapter 4 and teaches you how to engage your world. So character, relationships, and engagement, it's all about the glory of God working itself out from your new heart. Now today we're going to look at relationships. We're going to go through some challenging territory. And we're going to see just how wonderful relationships in the body of Christ can be. We're going to also get the sting of conviction about in our lives how some of them are. And we're going to get a vision for what God can do. We're going to do it by talking about three things. There's some aspects about who you are as a Christian that he begins with that he wants you to remind yourself of. Then there's some actions. There's about six or seven of them right in the middle of the text that he says you ought to be going after in your relationships in the body of Christ. And then finally, there's some attitudes that if you have them growing in your life will make all of this easier. So that's how we'll walk through it together. So if you've got your Bible open or on, don't you love how trendy I am? Open or on. We're going to go deep into Colossians 3, 12 to 15. So, first of all, there's some key aspects in, Christ, in Christ-like relationships. You can't begin to have them unless you remember some things that are true about you and about everyone else in the body of Christ. As always, Paul says, who you are determines how you live. And you got to remember who we all are together. When he begins here, he talks about putting on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He begins to talk about who we are all together before he starts to piece it out in the, in the next verse about how we live together. There's four things to remember about who we all are as Christians, who we all are in the body of Christ, who this gathering of new people are, as David read from the scripture, what we all have in common. So he, he talks about putting, that, putting on these attitudes, put on then, and he's reflecting back over some things. So um, there's four things. Here's the first that he wants us to remember, just about who we all are. First of all, we're all a unified church. 
This is kind of implied in the, in the phrase because he says, put on then, and you want to take a look at the word then. He's carrying on some reasoning, isn't he? It's an if-then kind of thing, right? So where do, we, where do we go? We go back in the passage, and he's coming out of verse 11. Last week we saw that verse 11 talks about the fact that though we bring a lot of old identities into our relationship with Christ, they're all overcome by one great identity, and that is that we're all in Christ. And in this, in verse 11, you go back to it, he says, here there, here in the body, in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. He's saying that you may have come from a, a different set of religious background than other people when you became a Christian. That's the first one. You might have had a different, uh, pardon me, a racial background is the first one. The second is a religious background. A lot of people come from different religions when they come to Christ. The third is a uh, cultural background in terms of education or experience. A lot of people from different levels of society come into the body of Christ. And then the final one there, slave or free, talks about the economics that you came from or that you live in right now. We all have a different economic status when we come to the body of Christ. All of those are parts of our past, but they're not the biggest part of our present. The biggest thing about us is not what our religion was, what our race is, what our economics are, or what our cultural background is. Christ is all, he says, and in all. His implication there is, there is something that unifies us more than any of those things, or any one of those things. They're important to understand. They're important to to make sure that we live in Christ's love in all of those dimensions as much as we can. But there is something greater than all of those put together. Christ is all, he said. So the church is unified around Jesus. So important to remember this today when there's so many calls to unify around some other thing that are important, but they're not ultimate. Remember that language. They're important, but they're not ultimate. So we're a unified church. We all were brought to Jesus together from all kinds of backgrounds, but we're all now in him. We're all blessed together and we're all equal together. And get this, we're all deserving together of being treated with God's love in the same way. When you come into the church of Jesus Christ, there is no qualifiers for how much you should be loved on by God's people. We are all in Christ. Every believer around you, no matter how different they may be from you, is like you in the most important thing. They're like you because you're in Jesus and they're in Jesus. There's a lot of different people in the body of Christ. You say, boy, you aren't kidding, Pastor. I've met some real different folks since I've been here. (laughs) Oh, really? Well, the Bible did say not many wise, not many noble. He didn't call the most impressive. And by the way, you're in that boat too, Jack. Thank you. Appreciate the humility. Yeah, you think they're different? Well, you got to hear what they say over lunch about you. I mean, you're different too. But that's the point. We're all different. Some of us have different points of preference over it. But yeah, we're all different, but, but we're all deserving in the same way of being loved in Jesus Christ. So important. So we're a unified church. Remember that as you struggle with the differences that you may see. We're all the same in one great aspect. We were broken sinners, and now we're in Jesus. Second, 
He says, as you begin to think about your relationships, remember, not only are you you part of a unified church, we're all in Christ, but secondly, you're part of a chosen church. He says, as God's chosen ones, that's a fact. Now, this speaks about God's election. The fact that the scripture does teach that that you were chosen to be in Christ from before the foundation of the world. There are so many understandings and views about the doctrine of election, and there are lots of different approaches to that domain and, 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 and the nature of human will and all of it. I don't want to get into any of that today except to say that the Bible does teach that we are God's chosen ones. And the Bible does teach that that choosing took place before the foundation of the world And it also teaches that your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life, believer, and that it will never be erased. Can I get an amen to that? Would we all agree on that? Oh, yeah. So we are all chosen, and our relationship with Christ is eternal. It's precious to us. It'll never be undone. Another way of looking at that is, guess what? We're going to be together forever, world without end, amen. Some of you are saying, oh boy. Because <laughs> pastor, boy, there's, there's some difficult people in my church. Yeah, but they're all belonging people. And they're all part, we're all part of this together. And we're chosen together. Now, you, you, this is all part of the will of God and the mind of God. We're all difficult, but yes, we're also all belonging. That's important. Remember, I just think it's, it's important and reminds me of the guy that that was leaving church one day and he had that friend of his that had been a problem with him for years and they went to the same church and when they left church that friend would often just hit him with a zinger on the way out in the parking lot and just tick him all off for the rest of the Sunday and Sure enough, he hit him with a zinger again as they were leaving. And this guy gets home and he just tells his wife, he says, I can't believe this. He just zinged me like that again. He, every... Then he said, you know, it just occurred to me, the first letter of his last name is the same as the first letter of our last name. And his wife says, yeah, so what? The guy says, well, that means that in the Lamb's Book of Life, his name... It's going to be in the same section as mine forever. Can't believe it. No, the point, have been, the point should have been, yeah, walk into that. Anyway, quaint story. Maybe it doesn't land for you. Work for me in the study anyway. Uh, so, <laughs> but isn't it true? We're all unified. We've been brought into the church from all different backgrounds, but the biggest thing about you and me is that we're in Christ. We're rescued. And secondly, we're all part of a chosen church. We're going to belong together forever. So relationships in the church should be precious and they should grow. Thirdly, he says, not only are you God's chosen ones, he says, you're holy. We're a holy church. Hagias in the Greek meant set apart from sin for Christ. And it means that God has a vision for you. Every single person in the church is a holy person in the sense that he saved you from sin, he's going to be with you forever, and he wants to now take you away from bondage to sin more and more in your life. And the hardest testing ground for that to happen is relationships. Trust me. And God has a vision for you to grow in Christ-like relationships. He has a vision for every single one of us. 
And yet how often we look at people that struggle with certain relational sins or who have sinned against us relationally in the body of Christ, or we look at their life and we see a lot of broken relationships around them. And sometimes we shake our head and say, wow, she's never really going to be able to overcome her past. It's just one mistake after another for her. And we kind of look down on her and cluck our tongue. And No, I just told you, you can come from whatever past you come from, verse 11, but you're now in Christ and Christ is in you. That means her potential is the same as your potential. She's going to have a harder road, but she's got the same great master. So we, we so often quietly and proudly judge others who have greater struggles than we do. Oh no, that she is called to just as much holiness as you are called to, and God can do that in her life. Pray for her to move into freedom as opposed to putting her in a box that's lined with her past. Don't do that. Here's the last. We're a unified church. We're chosen. We're all holy. We all have the same opportunity to, to be as free as we can possibly be in our battle with sin. But lastly, he says, we're a beloved church. You're God's chosen ones. You're holy and beloved. What is that all about? Agapao is the word. It was the Greek word for unconditional love and sacrificial love. It's the word that's used to describe God's love for you. You did not deserve God's love. And he loved you in ultimate sacrificial terms by the giving of his son. God says you have been beloved. God has placed his love upon you. He has set you apart for his love. He sent the very best to sacrifice for that love. And now his love is upon you. To me, that means that we have the great opportunity to be different people than the world. He has set his love upon us, and verse 11 says he set his, his son in us. And so therefore, our potential of love is magnified by that. First John 4.19 says we love because he, what, first loved us. People look at that and they, and they say, well, that means the cross is supreme, which is true. But it also means that since we have received the love of God and it's been shed abroad in our hearts, according to Galatians, we actually have the power to love as he loved in that sacrificial way. So here's my application point under that. You know, the world is getting worse and worse and worse in its relationships, particularly as the stressors of the last couple years have brought out. Isn't that true? Stories are all around us. All of us have experienced it. The world is worsening in its ability to love without conditions. But the church has the opportunity to grow in its love without conditions under the power of Jesus Christ, both toward each other and toward the world. So he begins by saying, listen, I'm going to call you guys into some deep, Love commitments that he begins to lay out. Now, talking about compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and so on. But I want you to remember that you're already the people that can live this way. I've already brought you together in Jesus, in unity. I've already chosen you from the foundation of the world, and I intend to work out my will in your lives. You're mine. I've already called you out to be a holy church and given you the Holy Spirit through whom you can be more like me. 
And I've placed my love upon you so you know what it's like to be loved unconditionally. Now in my power, you can love each other unconditionally. What I'm about to tell you now is totally possible. That's the first point of his argument. Let's go now to the second. If you understand those aspects about who we are together, then there are some actions that Christ-like relationships reflect. That's the next section. That's the majority of it. Now he goes into itemizing things. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility. These are all the things that are governed by the leading verbal phrase in the, in the start of the verse. Put on then. What, what are we to put on? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, a bearing with one another, and so on. So this is how we're supposed to live this out. Obeying the commandment. And they're all about being directed toward others in the body of Christ and also to the world. Now, let me start in my explanation of these. By the way, if you're a person that loves word studies, you're going to come into the, one of the richest little veins of biblical words here in the next few minutes that, that are in Paul's writings. It's going to be exciting. But I want to give you a little reminder about where we are when we learn this and when we read it. Because we're in the age and the stresses of COVID. And um, as I've said many times up here, regardless of how you view the nature of, of the disease or the issues around it, the fallout from it has, has, has leveled up stressors in our world for everybody. And um, when you live in a global trial, Maybe you've gone through a trial that's lasted unexpected in your world, physical or parenting or, or employment-wise or whatever, that suddenly came upon you and stretched out over a few years. Maybe you've had that experience by now in your adult life. Well, COVID's kind of like that, but it just came on the whole world. And what did that do to you, that long season of struggle where you were under it and barely getting by and trying to learn how to get through it in Christ? What happened to your tolerances? What happened to your, uh, to your relational life? What happened to your ability to handle things? Did your margin get compressed? Just nod, because mine does. And so what's happened in this most recent experience is what I call trials trip hammer. A trip hammer is something that gets tripped under pressure. And when a certain level of global trial comes on your life, one of the trip hammers that falls is that you get much more self-involved and self-concerned, and you get you did, your universe turns into your issues and your problems more tightly than normal. This is a human reaction. And we're, we're going through a season where trials trip hammer has fallen. And one of the things that's happened to us is that by nature, we've got more involved with our problems and our issues and less attentive to the needs of, of, of other people. Maybe you don't live in my house, but that's what's true in my world. That's my biggest struggle with all of this. So now I'm going to be teaching you how to be other directed and I, I want to explain as I begin that this is a tough list and it's a tough time, but realize that you're just you're you're in an environment where it's going to be even harder to hear what I'm going to tell you. But it's still supernaturally possible to grow into this list, is all I'm saying. 
So there's some key actions that he wants to be taken. And all of this, by the way, is in the church. It's in the body of Christ first. Then it goes to your family and out from there. Now, Paul loves lists in this whole chapter. He gave us two tough lists in the earlier verses we studied last week. Remember the list of how you, you progress into immorality? That was a tough list to go through. You think it was tough for you to hear? It's tough for me to preach. And then there was another list about how you can suddenly and silently ascend into anger and destructive words to people. Well, now he brings out a list, but this list is positive. It's the way to become a blessing to people. And when you look at it, I've identified five different dimensions that he calls us to live into with each other. I'll list them and explain them, and I'll go into some of the word images. They're beautiful. The first is, he wants to call you into a life committed to actions of compassion. There he begins, compassionate hearts. It's interesting imagery here. He, uh, he talks about your heart, and uh, he uh, talks about the nature of, of compassion. And the, uh, the word compassion, along with the, the combination with the word heart there, it came from a word I've already explained to you from the past. Um, and it meant to feel pity in your gut, in, in the depths of who you are. When you look at somebody's situation, you're so overwhelmed with what you see about what they're struggling with or what's happened to them that it just, you feel it in the pit of your stomach, you feel pity. And in fact, when you, I, I illustrated a couple of weeks ago, it, it's like it's the, it's the physical and emotional experience you have when you hear about bad thing, something bad happened to somebody you care about. And when you first hear the news, right out of you comes the word, oh, oh. That's the idea of compassion here. It's a very visual word that talks about feeling distress over what they've lived through or are living through so that it produces this compassion, this pity, this willingness and desire to reach out. And he says, we all ought to have that toward each other. Now, how in the world can that be? I think what he's saying here is to, to begin a love relationship with people in the body of Christ, it truly helps to ask God to help you to see their needs. It truly helps to ask God to help you to experience compassion over what they're going through, over where they've come from, or what they live with. And if you have a deep enough relationship with someone over time, you're going to find out some of those things. You're going to find out some of the hard things they've come from, or you're going to find out some of the unbelievable things they live with, or some of the dimensions to their personality that were welded into them by some of the most hideous people you can ever imagine, and you pray you never meet. All of us, if you really took... A, you got, if you had God's look into our pasts and our current struggles, you would be filled with compassion. For indeed, Jesus was. We saw that he looked on those crowds and he felt compassion for them, for they were like sheep struck down and scattered without a shepherd. So the first principle here is 
as you, as you relate in the body of Christ, ask God to give you an understanding of compassion. Help, help him, ask him to give you an idea of what people that you're loving in the body of Christ may be living with. This has helped me over the years, and, and uh, I guess you could put it in a phrase. If God's called you to, live, to love some of the difficult people in your world in the body of Christ, to love the difficult, ask God for his eyes into their lives. And compassion will rise. And you'll be able to live out the next dimensions in this list more powerfully. So a compassionate heart starts it all. Secondly, kindness. Compassionate hearts, put them on. Ask God to give you that compassionate heart as part of your new life. And then live out, live it out in kindness. Kindness. Another beautiful word. Christotes in the Greek. Here's what some, an expert on the Greek described it as, quote, it is the friendly and helpful spirit which seeks to meet the needs of others through kind deeds, end of quote. In other words, it's an emotion followed by an action. It's a decision demonstrated by an action. In compassion, you see the need in their life or the brokenness in their past or the struggles in their present, and you are moved to act in kindness in your relationship with them. You keep in mind where they've come from and who they are right now in their, their, their staggered level of growth in Jesus. And you look into their lives to see if there's a way that you can simply take action. So it's an image followed by an action. F.B. Meyer, the grand old Bible commentator of the past, says this when we live in kindness, quote, we put others in the place of ourselves. We treat them as we would wish to be treated ourselves. We change places with them. And I would add, regardless of what they've done or are doing, what this means is you're aware of their sin. You speak into their sin as God leads you to. But even regardless of the sin of their past or even how they're acting right now, you look for a way to minister to them and to bring kindness into their world. You trade places with them in your mind and say, what could possibly their need be if I were in their situation? And is there a way I can simply meet it? This is astounding when you understand it. You look for a dimension in their life, a simple thing. Maybe, maybe you look at something that you've denied them in the relationship for months or years now because of your irritation or how they've hurt you. Some simple graces of just basic relating that you've held back from them. And you begin to say, regardless of their maturity, where they've come from, or even what they're doing right now, I'm going to pray for them to repent of their sin and trust Christ, but I'm going to find a way to deliver the simple kindnesses of life into their world as a gesture of my love for them in Jesus. For some of you, and for some of me, it could be actually speaking to a person again. Or it could be asking and inquiring about needs in their life. Or it could be a simple deed of kindness of bringing something by the house or giving them a gift or offering them something that you thought might help them when you bump into them at church. You know, I've, I've seen in, in my life that the simple decision to look for a way to be kind again in the smallest ways can be a trickle of water into a frozen marriage that begins to thaw 
that sense of repentance in their heart and that joy in your heart. Compassion. When you look with God's eyes upon who they are, where they've been, kindness begins to trickle forth from your heart into their life. Thirdly, he says, let that compassion grow into kindness and let it walk in humility. Believe me, you can't be kind until you've decided to be humble. Because the first step to being kind is getting off of what you wanted and what you deserved and humbling yourself and say you're going to love in spite of, not uh, you say I won't love until. Humility is, uh, is kind of in short supply in the world. Um, in fact, its opposite is on the increase. Its opposite is a, a social trait called narcissism. Narcissism, according to the experts, is a serious social and psychological problem. It's defined this way, quote, an inflated view of the self coupled with relative indifference to others. If you've interacted with the narcissistic personality, that's a pretty accurate definition. Narcissists used to be somewhat unusual in the, in the overall spectrum of how people lived and how they acted, but narcissism is on a dangerous and amazing rise in American life. University of Michigan professor Brad Bushman has done a study on this, and his data indicated in his conclusion, he said, quote, narcissism in America is increasing, particularly among the young. There's something about this American culture that seems to feed these narcissistic tendencies, the changes in the Internet, like Facebook and YouTube, but it's also reflected in television programs, all these reality shows where people can become stars. They're viewed, by the way, by young and older alike. Let's all admit it. Narcissism, it's trip-hammered into our society today. We're seeing more and more of it. And the sad thing is that what happens in the culture trickles into the church. <laughs> Don't miss that. We're seamlessly connected with it today. And this is dangerous because Paul's premise is, listen, you've got to be the right person before you can start doing the right things. Narcissism poisons the person. It's the exact opposite of humility. But our society is more and more wrapped around itself, isn't it? You say, well, it's just worse than ever, Pastor. I, I, I think our whole world is cycling into a, a, a new level of just depravity and selfishness that we've never seen before. Well, I, you know, I've said that at times. But the more I go back over human history and the more I read my Bible, um, no. <laughs> This has happened before. Paul says there will be, in the, in the last days, there will be seasons of this. A season, a kairos. It's a time when it escalates into a worse condition than it usually is. And I think we're in a kairos of narcissism and a kairos of self-involvement in the West particularly. But it's happened before in different ages, in different times. Back in Paul's time, in, in the Roman society in which he wrote this letter... Did you know that the Greek language at that time, it had no word for, the, for humility? The word humility in Colossians here, in chapter uh, 3, verse 12, did not exist until who created it? The Christians did. 
Well, I should say the Holy Spirit did. And he put it into the scripture because he'd already put it into his people. Isn't that amazing? To have a whole culture, the greatest culture on the face of the earth at the time, existing for centuries, and your language never had a word for humility. So yeah, it's happened before. (laughs) Culture has been this congealed upon itself before. And into this, Paul says, we as the body of Christ, we want to walk in what is astounding to the culture, and that is humility toward one another. What a way to stand out as being possessed by Christ. Humility. Now he amplifies this with a a follow-on word that I I put under the same category. He says, humility is tied to meekness. That's an interesting word too. Protes in the Greek. It was used in classical Greek to describe a wild horse that had been tamed. Think about that. You are humble only to the extent that that wild horse of self-will in you has been tamed by the Holy Spirit, and you can now begin to think of someone else besides yourself. Now, that wild horse is still there, but you've grown in Christ, and you've begun to exert your new will in Christ over your old desires. That's all he's been talking about for the last, last chapter here. Put off your old desires, put on your new, live like the new person Christ created you to be, and tame the wild horse that's in you. When you've grown in that, you've become a person who is starting to show not only humility, but meekness. Your your will is becoming tamed. It's a beautiful image. Dr. Fritz Reinecker, who wrote the New Linguistic and Exegetical Key to the Greek New Testament. Man, are you impressed? I'll tell you. <laughs> A mind greater than mine, that's why I went to it, describes praoutes this way. It describes controlled strength, the ability to bear reproaches and slights without bitterness and resentment, the ability to provide a soothing influence on someone who is in a state of anger, bitterness, and resentment against life. Well, are we, li- are we living in an age like that with the COVID thing right now? That's, that's everything you're receiving. Maybe in some family dynamics you're struggling with or or your work environment with all this division in our society about how people are reacting to COVID and the restrictions and everything else. It just seems that everybody out there is bearing reproaches and slights and throwing around bitterness and resentment. And he says, praiutes, that meek spirit is a controlled strength under all of that. It allows you to provide a soothing influence Uh, to someone who is in a state of anger, bitterness, and resentment against life. Wow. He then goes on, he says, it's the opposite of arrogance. The word stands in contrast to the Greek term orge, which meant anger. That should be familiar because last week, that's what I taught you. He was talking about three verses earlier when he says, don't let anger dominate your life. Orge is the word. It's just, just this bubbling irritation. It's the opposite of that, he says. It's the opposite. It stands in contrast to the term orge or wrath or anger as a state of mind. It denotes the humble and gentle attitude which expresses itself in particular in a patient submissiveness to offense and a freedom from malice and from a desire for revenge. That's incredible. That's how we need to be toward 
a blind and reactive and frightened world, but that's also, believer, how we need to be in the body of Christ toward one another. Don't forget he's talking about relationships in the church. So there's plenty of chances for us to dominate and react to each other in anger and intolerance instead of that meek spirit. A lot of us need to rein the stallion in and come under the guidance of the gentle Holy Spirit right in our own relationships in the body. So compassion, he calls us to as an action. Second action, live a life of kindness. Third, grow in your humility, which is marked by that meekness right underneath. Fourth, he says, as you live this way, I want you to also demonstrate patience that right at the end of verse 12. There's another beautiful word for you, word study people, macrothumia. Now, uh, macros, we, we, we use our, when we, when we say, give me the macro explanation of this macro versus micro. Macro is the big picture. It also could mean, in, in, in original Greek, long or distant, far off. And then thumia comes to the Greek word thumos, which meant explosive anger. And you should be familiar with that too, because last week I taught you, Paul said, listen, if you let anger stir, verse 8, in your life, it'll grow into wrath. Wrath was the word thumos. So he's using exactly the opposite here. He's saying, as you leave a life of simmering anger that comes out and expresses itself in explosive thumos, like a volcano, wrath, Instead, become a person who's the exact opposite, who is so controlled that it takes a long time of offense before they blow up. You could say that macrothemia here, patience means having a long fuse. It's literally long temper. That's how the Greek translates it. It's a long holding out of the mind before it gives room to action. And I think you understand my meaning here. One, other, one expert I read this past week wrote this. It is the ability to hold one's feeling in restraint or bear up under the oversights and wrongs afflicted by others without retaliating. I find it interesting that that's what the Bible says God's heart did to you in your life without him. Romans 2.4, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, macrothumia? God's willingness to endure all you did in your non-Christian life against him. And now even today, where you may be resisting him, he has a heart that holds him back from retaliation. Another uh, commentator, Dr. Evans, said that macrothemia could also be translated deep emotions. In other words, it's like you have a well of endurance in you that just won't dry up no matter how much is drawn from it. You get the picture. It's the ability to endure a lot of things before you strike out in anger. Wow, we need that today. We need that so much in our relationships with the world, but also in Christ and in the church. Here's the last one. Forgiveness. Compassion, kindness, humility, patience. A patience that lets you bear with one another. Hold it long before you react. And if one has a complaint against another, here's the last one, forgiving each other. Wow, praise the Lord. We're to forgive as he forgave, aren't we? 
Don't miss that qualifier. As the Lord has forgiven you, how did God free you, uh, deliver, uh, forgive you freely, without condition, for the depths of what you did? It's in the present tense, which means that's supposed to be our lifestyle with each other. It's in the middle voice, which means we have to take the action and initiative to forgive. We don't wait till a person becomes forgivable. And it's like the Lord Jesus did. It's just this kind and welcoming spirit toward those that have offended you. Old Deal Moody used to preach a message on this about when, when the Lord told Peter to go out into the ministry. And he liked to imagine that conversation going this way. He liked, in his message on this, he said, I picture the Lord saying to Peter, now you go and hunt up the man who put the crown of thorns on my head and tell him that I love him. Tell him that he can have a crown in my kingdom, one without a thorn. And you go find that woman who spat in my face as I bore the crossbar through Jerusalem on the Via Dolorosa, and you go preach my gospel to her and tell her that I forgive her and that I went on that day to die to save her. And Peter, you go find that soldier who thrusts that spear into my side and tell him that there is a quicker way to my heart. Forgive as Christ forgave you. We've got to do that in the body of Christ. Somebody once said that everybody should have a good-sized cemetery in which to bury the faults of all their friends. That's the truth. Well, I must close. I'm going to go to the last here. And by now, if you're like me listening to a message like this, I'd be saying, whoa. Wow, and woe, and woe is me. <laughs> I mean, that's so not where I'm at, right now. I'm at right now, Pastor. I mean, if you're being transparent, you might say that. Our relationships have gotten a detention and taken a beating. That's so not where I'm at right now. In fact, I've been even more about me than usual over the last months. <laughs> where in the world do I even start? I mean, listen to that list. Well, there's some good news because Paul knows how we're put together. And he closes with just three basic things to remember that if you put yourself into the mindset with these, the other actions he just laid out, you'll be able to pursue them more in your life. If I would put it in our modern language today, he describes at the end there, he says, listen, if you want to live out these things, there's three places you need to be. And if you have that mindset, it'll help you start living this out. And that's where he closes with. You take a look at the verse. He goes through this long list. And then he says, and above all, verse 14, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. There's three things he says. Listen, to get all this going in your life as a Christian, or get it going again, go back and have three overall key attitudes. The first is, Above all these, put on love. Agapao, same word, love as God love, without condition and sacrificially. And he says, when you do this as a mindset, it binds everything together. He's taking the imagery of 
putting off old clothes and putting on a new robe. Remember that first part of the chapter? And when you put on a new robe, that thing was big and boxy and could flow everywhere. So the next thing you did was you put on a a wide belt and you put it around you, kind of tucked the robe under there and cinched it tight. And he says, that's what love does. It'll bring all of these character traits into your life and it'll begin to control your life and hold it all together. And it will enable you to start being a person like this. I hope you get the imagery. So here's my encouragement. If, if you're overwhelmed with how self-involved you've gotten, like I have in these months particularly, let me ask you, can you start every day by praying about your difficult people? Lord, help me show your love to them regardless of what they do today. Could you do that? Hmm, that could help. That's a good space to move into. And to live from. Second space to live from, he says, not only do you want to bind love onto your life, but let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now we look at that as Westerners and we look at peace and we say, it's this feeling of contentment that's all about me. <laughs> but did you know the Greek word peace, arena there, actually meant to join or bind together two things that have been separated. Peace in the New Testament is not primarily about you to have this calm set of emotion about you. It was actually more about being at peace with other people. And that's what is implied here. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, plural. Let peace under Christ dominate and rule in your relationships. So Christ is calling us to peace in that sense. So it's not about you again. It's about how you're relating to others. When he says, when he calls it to rule there, that was the ancient Greek word for umpire uh, or referee an athletic match. So the imagery here is saying, listen, if you're in a contest in a situation with another person who's difficult and angering to you, Christ is the referee over both of your lives. The other person may not be listening, but you'll hear Christ's whistle and Christ will whistle and say, my ruling on the field is for you to be at peace. I want you to be at peace. I'm responsible for the other person, but my call on the field for you is you do whatever you need to do to be at peace with this person. Doesn't mean you, you don't speak about their sin, and it doesn't mean you put yourself in a position where you're abused or, or where there's, there's, there's wrong done, but in your heart and in your attitude toward them, I'm making a call on the field, and that is, I want you to be at peace. That's his call. You say, well, what if I don't like the call? Well, it's not your game. He's the ref. Same way it was last week when at Dallas when Dak did that designed run play and he ran a little bit too far and he handed the football to the wrong guy and ran out of time and holy injustice was done. I can just tell you that right now. Until I went back and looked at the replays and I realized, no, the refs were right. It's not my game. Do what makes for peace. Here's the last I mean, how do you start your day with peace? Here, here's my suggestion. Could you, in these contentious relationships in your life, pray, Lord, help me respond to your call to, to seek to be at peace with this person because I've already won in Jesus. Amen. Hmm, that could be a good start.
That could help. Here's the last. He says, don't also forget to bring gratitude into your life. Well, that's the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You were called to that. My body is to be at peace, he said, and be thankful. Eucharistos, it was, it was the word of giving thanks to God. It wasn't being thankful to that person or about that person. It was saying, God, I know you're sovereign. I know your goodwill needs to be done. You're wise and you love me. I'm going to thank you for these problem relationships. I'm going to thank you for this situation. And I'm mindful of your blessing. So could you start your day by praying, Lord, help me to be so grateful for what I have in you and from you that I don't have to fight for that person's blessing. Hmm. That could help. Well, like I said, if the risen Christ enters somebody's life, some supernatural things should start happening. If the risen Christ is claimed by a body of people, some supernatural things should start happening. In today's cultural climate, nothing would seem more supernatural than Christ's love and human relationship. In a recent book entitled Humbled, which I think is a great title for our generation to study, David Mathis wrote, within measure, we can take certain modest steps to cultivate a posture of humility in ourselves. In other words, we all think about being humble and we try on occasion. But the main test and the opportunity comes when we are confronted, unsettled, and accosted in the moments when our semblances of control vanish and we're taken off guard by the hard edges of life in a fallen world. In other words, when when pain suddenly rises and the edge gets sharper than you've ever tasted in your life by what people do to you and around you, that's when humility really gets its test. That's where we're living as a culture right now. The hard edges of an angry world, they can poke into the church. And then there's hard edges that we all brought with us into God's family that can poke. And he's saying, listen... I want you to trust me to love each other in my